Well, I'm Barry, and with my wife of 48 years, my first wife, uh, we're going to uh, continue our series on parenting this morning. Uh, We've got three married children between the ages of 43 and 46, and by God's grace, the three of them today uh, will be in God's house worshipping him and during the week living for him and serving him. And they are looking after our eight grandchildren. Now, Anne and I are in no way experts of raising a family. We're just two sinners who have experienced God's grace and our lifelong mission has been to build a strong family, build the strong marriage first and then into that marriage bring and grow a family. We don't have all the answers. We are flawed, we are failed, and Mark will tell you those stories if you talk to him later. But anyone who is married knows that it's hard. Marriage is hard. Raising children is hard. Life is sometimes hard. True? But we're not alone. And that's the wonderful truth that God is with us. Hebrews 13.5, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Isaiah 43, when you go through the flood, when you go through the fire, I'll be with you. There is that promise that we are not alone. And parenting is hard. But I want to give you hope this morning. It's called grandparenting. Because your children present you with perfect grandchildren. And they come and stay. And when they misbehave, they, you just say, they're not my, my children. Here, take them home. <laughs> Always in our married life, we have resorted to Ephesians chapter 5. And I wonder if uh, you've got your Bibles, you'd turn there with me now or it will be on the screen. And uh, we just keep coming back to this passage because it's all here. But all too often we begin this passage at the wrong spot. We, We start, men love to start at verse 22 because it says, wives, submit yourselves. We ought to back up, men, because verse 21 says, submit yourselves to one another. But folks, we need to back up even further because we don't have the capacity to submit. We don't have the capacity to love in our own strength. We've got to back up to verse 18 where the Apostle Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that's a continuous action word in the Greek language. It's it's putting a jug under a running tap and leaving it there. And it's always being filled. And you and I will find life difficult if we go through it in our own strength. But if we present ourselves inviting the Spirit of God to pour his life into us continually, then we can face life. And so verses 19 and 20. Talk about spirit-filled worship. Verse 21 talks about spirit-filled submission. Verse 22 talks about wives submitting to their husbands. 
Ladies, you need the help of the Spirit of God within you to do that. But verse 25 says to the men, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And men, you and I know that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to do that because that is way beyond our capacity. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, kids, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. And children need the help of the Spirit. And then in verse 4, we need God's help. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And parents, and men in particular, because I want to speak to you, Anne can speak to the ladies. But parents, there's our job description, to bring up our children, to train them, in the instruction of the Lord. And this is my primary responsibility in life. I am the discipler of my children and that's what I must commit my life to. So often we want to push off our responsibility and say, well, I belong to a church. It's Adam's responsibility. He's the youth pastor. It's Beck's responsibility. She's the children's ministry leader. It's their job to disciple my children. Wrong. It's my job to disciple my children and it takes a village to raise a family. So in this Christian village, there are those who will complement and supplement me in my role, you in your role as a parent. But it's not their responsibility. It's my responsibility and we need to hang on to that because God will never excuse me and he will never absolve me of my responsibility. Now, of course, there are no guarantees that we can get our children to follow the Lord. Even the perfect father, the heavenly father, has prodigals. You're listening to one and I'm looking at some. We're all prodigals and we had a perfect father. And so as we disciple our children, let's understand that we cannot manipulate or force them into the heavens. Sometimes we use Proverbs 22, 7, train up a child in the way that he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. That is not a promise, folks. That's a proverb. And a proverb is a probability. So if we train them up in the right way, then the probability is that they will follow. Now, I can't force and you can't force your children to drink from Jesus, who is the water of life. But let's make them thirsty for him by our life. We can't force our children to eat of Jesus, who is the bread of life. But let's make them hungry for him. Let them see how real he is to us in our life. And we can't force our children to follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. But we can warn them about the, the broad way that leads to destruction and the heartache and the sadness and the pain 
when we turn our back on God. Now, here's a couple of thoughts, particularly for fathers, but ladies, have a listen because I think you'll find the universal truths. This is not all that makes a good father or a good parent, but it's just a couple of things that are important to me. Number one, dads, love your children's mother. That's the best thing you can do for them. And Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. You see, there's the example. And we're so busy at times telling our wives what to do. You're going to submit to me and... We carry on. But I've got to fulfil my part. And I'll tell you what I've discovered. I am so busy trying to love Anne like Jesus loves me that I don't have time to tell her how to submit to me. And you know, if she's loving Jesus, it all just works out. And so by my fathering and the loving of my children's mother... I bring the heavenly love of Jesus into an earthly world and help them understand what this love means. The love that forgives, the love that doesn't keep the list of wrongs, the love that is not proud and boastful and puffed up, the love that is kind and gentle and forgiving, the love of the second chance. And you know, when we love our children's mother... We give our kids a safe place to grow, to flourish. We give them a safe place to fail because there they will be picked up and dusted down and helped on their way again. A place where they're going to be encouraged and told, you can do it. God's on your side. When we love our children's mother, we set an example for our sons of what it is to respect and honour a woman in an age of the sexual objectification of women. I remember as a kid I made two mistakes one day. I was 12 and I was doing a job and my mum called out something and in anger I answered her in terrible disrespect And the second mistake was I was next to my father when I showed disrespect for my mother. And he applied the Board of Education to the seat of learning and I can still feel the ridges. But I want to tell you, my mother had nothing but respect from me after that because my father taught me, you love your mother, you love women because I knew that my dad loved my mum but also you see when you love your mother you teach something when you love your kids mothers you, you teach something to your daughters you say to them girls my princess this is how a man should love a woman and you build up a vision in their heart of the man that they should be looking for, their Prince Charming. And if there's some jerk who comes along to take advantage of them, they have built-in resistance because they know and they sense true love because they've seen it in the love of their dad for their mum. 
Husbands, love your children's mothers. It's hard, but you've got the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. Pray without ceasing. I don't have to tell you that, that raising a family is hard. And there are so many pressures, there are so many seductive pressures in the world. And it's hard to raise a family. And we need help and that's what prayer is all about because the devil is out there and he is seeking to rob and steal and destroy. He wants to destroy our marriage. He wants us to, to, to rob us of our joy. He wants to take away the unity of our families. And we've got some weapons to deal with that. We've got the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. We've got the presence of the Holy Spirit to empower us. And we've got prayer that enforces victory over the enemy. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul continues this the, the, the impact, if you like, of what comes out of a life that is controlled by the Spirit, it's a, a follower who goes into battle. And so in verse uh, 11, uh, stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Look at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And what about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 where husbands are told to respect and honour their wives. Husbands in the same way be considered as you live with your wife or your wife and treat her with respect as the weaker, weaker partner as an heir with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayer. You see, the way I treat my wife is going to have an impact on answered prayer. And so I need to love the wife of my children and I need to be praying. And when I pray, I am saying to my children, hey, we don't have all the answers, but we worship a God who does. We've got a God who cares for us and he'll hear and answer our prayer. And I've told you before that I did some research with Christians and I found that less than 10% of Christian couples pray together. And I want to put out the challenge, folks. That's not good. Is it any wonder that the devil is having a field day in Christian families and marriages? And statistically, when a couple pray together, the chances of your marriage improving are vast. And so if you're not praying together, here's the challenge. Pray together just once this week. Overcome the embarrassment. Husbands, you reckon you're the leader in your home. Well, step up and be the spiritual leader and say, come on, darling, let's pray. And you just sit down and you pray and pray for your family and ask God to help you to love your wife the mother of your children. And then pray with your children. Show them how to pray. Don't leave it up to your wife and say, oh, mum will teach you. That's what mum does at bedtime. The father is the prophet, the priest and the king in the family. And grandparents, isn't it our privilege? We have a little more time in our hands now. 
we need to be prayer warriors for our family. It's hard. We've got the Holy Spirit. He loves prayer. And finally, fathers engage with your kids. Great verses in Deuteronomy 6 where it talks about teaching your children so that they can teach their children so that they can teach their children. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all soul and strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols in your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What's Moses getting at there? He's just saying that all of life is a classroom of faith as you train up your disciples. And we ought to be teaching our children about world affairs and praying into the world. We ought to talk about what's happening in school and in our home and praying there and talking about God's involvement. And fathers, our engagement with our kids is absolutely critical. There's a lot of talk about gangs in Melbourne at the moment. I can guarantee to you this morning that the majority of those boys in gangs have had no father input, past or present, in their life. It's a fact. More than 80% of men who were in prison had little or no relationship with their father. So there are great benefits when a father engages. Your family's more prosperous, the kids will do better in education, you'll keep them from crime, you'll protect them from a lot of, not all, but a lot of drug and mental health issues, Protect your kids from child abuse and the list goes on. I'm going to leave for the men this morning a list of questions. And I want to encourage you guys, have a look at these questions and then sit down and engage with your wife and your children and your family and hear their heart. It's hard discipling your children. It takes time, effort, there's a high cost. But we're not on our own. We have the Holy Spirit. He comes to help. That's his business. Anne made a sign and put it up on the wall at home. So blessed. And we are. Not because of our marvellous parenting. Man, I was pushing my kids away. I was so legalistic and so afraid that they're going to do something wrong and I was ruling with an iron fist. But I had a wife who was wise and godly and by God's grace, we celebrate our family today and I can't describe for you the contentment and the joy in our hearts as each day we continue to pray for our family. And you know what? I can't think of anything better than worshipping in the presence of Jesus in glory with my arms wrapped around my family. God bless you. Well, good morning. You know, in Titus chapter 2, one of my favourite verses, it says, let the older women teach the younger women what is good. Well, I certainly qualify as an older woman and teaching about parenting is good. And I'm very blessed to be able to share with you this morning. 
uh, especially to the women. And I have a question for mothers, um, current mothers, mothers-to-be, grandmothers, and it's this. What is your vision for motherhood? Where did you get that vision from? And who were the voices that you listened to? I was a child of the 60s. I was a teenager in the 60s. And that was a time of of great change. And I had three very strong voices uh, in my life at that time. The late 60s were a time of enormous social and cultural change. And even though I was young and naive, I, I do remember the shift going on around me. It was, of course, the era of sex, sex without consequence, mind-altering drugs and long-haired rock stars that were idolised by delirious teenagers, the Beatles, Rolling Stones and all that sort of thing. It was also a time of rebellion against authority and war. But it wasn't until I became a mother in 1972 that I became aware of the greatest change of all. And that was in the role of women in the home and in society's devaluing of that role. The movement was called Women's Liberation. And this was the first loud voice in my life. We were supposed to be liberated. Well, what do you get liberated from? Slavery. There was a world out there for us. We could have it all. We could have a family and career, success and money. Equal rights. Well, housework and child-rearing, that was drudgery. It was only for the uneducated and the feeble-minded. Now, when you're elbow-deep in dirty nappies and dirty dishes, when you're sleep-deprived and you're yearning for adult conversation, that message was very seductive. I was always embarrassed by the question. I knew it was always going to come. What do you do, Anne? And I would answer... I'm just a housewife. That was such a conversation stopper in those days. Oh. <laughs> it was quite humiliating for a young, a young mum. What I should have said, and I always thought of this later, I should have said, I am raising the next generation of Australian leaders. What are you doing? Now let me ask you, after 50 years now of women's liberation, how do you think we're going as a society? How do you think families are going? How do you think children are going? How do you think women are going? The second voice in my head was my parents. Dad was a principal. He was a quiet gentleman, a great sense of humour. Mum, like all of her generation, was a full-time housewife. And they were devoted to each other. They were devoted to the Lord and they were devoted to us kids. I always said my parents had a PhD in great family fun. That was their specialty, especially picnicking. We had the most used picnic basket and thermos in town. We lived in northern New South Wales where the summers were hot. Most Saturdays after the jobs were done, we would head off to the beach. We'd be pulling on bathers and putting our towels around our necks. We practically lived in our bathers. Mum would be loading up the battered old picnic basket. Dad would fill the thermos with hot water and we'd be on our way. We'd arrive at the beach, Kingscliff Beach more often than not, and we kids would bolt for the water while Mum would find a spot to put the picnic blanket, the card table, the picnic basket, the thermos, 
um, everything to make it a perfect picnic. And then later on, after we'd exhausted ourselves in the surf with Dad, we'd eventually straggle back all salty and starving and, and dripping wet and just as happy as could be. And we'd sit around that picnic blanket devouring sandwiches and where everything was finally quiet with our mouths full, Mum would inevitably look around, look over her little brood and look over at the beach and she'd say, I wonder what the poor people are doing today. Aren't we so lucky? Yep, yep, we'd say dutifully. Um, we just felt really, really wealthy. We weren't, with mum as a full-time mum. Dad just had an ordinary job, but, but we felt wealthy. And that was the second loud voice in my head. After the beach, it was always Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, twice a day, we would always be in church. Not because we had to, because we were so blessed and so grateful for all the blessings that Jesus had given to us. Every blessing he poured out, we turned back to praise. And the values of reverence and gratitude and joyous living were deeply embedded in me and in all of us three kids. And we've all, myself and my two brothers, have followed the Lord all of our adult life. By the time my own children came along in the early 1970s, I was beginning to formulate my vision of motherhood. And it was this. I wanted to help my children become fully devoted followers of Jesus, knowing him as their saviour, knowing his purpose for their lives, and knowing that they would be with him in eternity. But I had these two conflicting voices in my head, one from the world and one from my family. One saying I was a slave and one saying I was wealthy. I needed, I really needed to hear what God wanted of me as a mother, specifically. So, my, so began my search of the scriptures and the study of good Christian books, lots of them. And this was the third and most important voice in my life. And this was the voice I chose. There are many passages and verses that were and have been very meaningful to me. And I want to just go through a few of them with you and share them with you. Some of them Barry's already shared. And we didn't copy when we prepared. <laughs> this is the way it's just turned out. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That sounded pretty full-time to me. It was when our kids were teens, I read in one of those books that the most important time for children to connect with their parents is before school after school, dinner time and bedtime. To be realistic though, that actually means it's the best time for parents to listen to their children. These are the times when children come in and they're often quite stressed before school and after school. Uh, and these times before school, after school, dinner time and bedtime is the perfect time for them to de-stress after the struggles of school and peer relationships and all the things that's going 
on in their life. They just pour it out. And I think of today's fast pace of life and the overcrowded family timetable and the resultant stress and anxiety. Those times of de-stressing for our children are so important. Then there was Proverbs 22, verse 6, which Barry has already read, train up a child in the way that he should go. And just below that verse is verse 15, which said, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Uh, There's another conflict, isn't there? Well, I took everything literally in those days. The only rod I had in the house was a curtain rod, so I thought, well, that's a bit rough. But the wooden spoon might come in handy. I'll just keep it there in case of folly. And it was folly to be disrespectful around this mama. So that wooden spoon came out of the drawer more often than not. So I was to be my children's teacher, especially in the preschool years when a child learns more than he will ever learn. It was tedious, it was repetitive, it was exhausting, and it was seemingly without result. Teaching, teaching, teaching. And then they go to school. And you send your children off to school and you think, oh, I hope they'll be good. I hope they'll remember everything I taught them. And on that first parent-teacher interview, you, you say, are they doing all right? Is he behaving? And I can remember clearly when uh, one of my son's teachers said, he's no trouble at all. I thought, well, he's a lot of trouble to me. <laughs> but it all pays off. The children are listening. They are learning. They are taking it in, more than we think. Now, the verse that I quoted just before, a very, very significant verse in my life, that the older women are to teach the younger women what is good, to train them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. That, that last little bit, I always struggled with that. So I looked up J.B. Phillips' translation and he had a lovely way of translating that last little bit. And it said that we are to be home lovers, kind-hearted, willing to adapt themselves to their husbands and a good advertisement for the Christian faith. A good advertisement for the Christian faith. There's that missional family thing again that Pete and Mandy talked about. And then there was my favourite verse of all, Proverbs chapter 31, 10 to 31, the wife of noble character. I needed someone to really inspire me and this lady does it in spades. What a star this woman is. The passage is begun with the the wife of noble character. It just grabs me right there. And it's this whole, I won't read the whole chapter, but I'll read the beginning and the end because it's just gorgeous. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing. And then in the end, towards the end, her children arise and call her blessed and her husband also and he praises her Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. What a husband. Just going to quickly go through all, the, all of the great aspects of this woman who was my star. Her husband, he was confident in her, he lacked nothing, he was respected in the city, and he praised her highly. 
Her capabilities, well, they were endless. Some people say this is more than one, one lady. I'm not sure. I took it literally. <laughs> Poor me. Anyway, this is what she was able to do. She was a weaver, a trader, a manager of her staff and household, a businesswoman, a gardener, a designer, a seamstress and a teacher. Her appearance. Verse 21 and 22, she was stylish. She was classy. All that scarlet and purple, just like Millie. <laughs> what about her character? Well, she was noble, hardworking, capable, intelligent, compassionate, strong, dignified, wise, and she feared the Lord. What about her value? More than rubies. And what was her reward? Honour and praise. Praise from her children, her husband and the city. Parenting is a long and it's a tough assignment. It's long and it's tough. The world calls it slavery. My parents called it wealth. The word of God calls it noble. The more I read the word of God, the more I realised that motherhood was a calling. The most important role I would ever play and one that would require my best effort and most of my time in the early years. My other career had to go on hold for a while. I needed to teach my own children before I taught other people's children. And that meant sacrifice of all kinds, financial as well as other things. But we carefully followed biblical guidelines on finance and we've never wanted for money. I feel it's important in conclusion to say just one more thing as I think maybe of help to some parents, to mums especially. There are two things that really torment mothers. One is fear and one is disappointment. Because we love our children so much, we can be very troubled by fear. Fear that our children will get sick or hurt that they might fail or make life-changing, life-damaging mistakes. They might reject the Lord or reject us. And this fear doesn't dissipate with their age. If anything, it intensifies. So they start to grow beyond our influence and our control. If our children do reject all that we've taught them and given them, our disappointment can be crushing, crushing. It can even turn to anger, especially to God, who didn't deliver when we did everything right. We can look at other families who seem to be trouble-free, and I stress, who seem to be trouble-free, and think, it's just not fair. We've actually known many families, and some of them quite close to us, who've raised their children exactly the same way we did. But their children turned away, either for a short term or for a very long time. And we've watched the different ways that parents have reacted to their disappointment some with resentment and anger. Some with patient, unconditional love and unceasing prayer for their children. They've wisely placed their children in God's hands, along with their fear and disappointment, and left it there. Just reminding you, my vision was to help my children, not make my children, but to help my children become fully devoted followers of Jesus, to know his know him as their saviour and know his purpose for their lives and know him for eternity. 
But as Barry said, there are no guarantees. And I can only do my best. And I have to keep reminding myself that I am not God. He is. He set me free. God set me free to choose whether I worshipped him or not. And I need to set my children free. To let them make their own transaction with God. Always remembering, he loves my children even more than I do.